Guess how guess how expired this allergy medication that I've been holding on to is? Extremely, I would guess. Guess. Guess what year it expired. Oh, um, I'm going to guess that it was after you graduated from high school, which is 2016. It was 2016. It was 2016. <laughs> That's so, wait, so mom must have bought it for you then, or dad or someone. Yeah, and it's like the, it's like it's the Costco allergy medicine. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so are you have you died? Like, what does expired allergy medication do? Uh, nothing. It really doesn't do anything. <laughs> Even getting rid of your allergies. I guess that makes sense. Welcome to Screenwalkers, the podcast where we, the walkers, tell you what's on our screens. My name is Becca, and this is Josh. Oh, uh, I was supposed to talk there? Yeah, it's okay. I didn't tell okay. you. <laughs> I, am, I am Josh. <laughs> this is Josh. Um, I didn't tell Ethan that I was doing this right now. Oh, no? Uh, so he, I, I just, like, I just put this blanket over me and my computer, and he's, like, <laughs> he's probably like, what the heck is going on? I'll explain it to him later, though. All right. So, uh, Josh, tell the good people out there in the internet what we're doing today. Okay, so this is a 64-team single elimination uh, movie bracket. Basically, what we've done is Rebecca has put up all of her favorite movies, and I should say there's some caveats to what is actually a favorite movie and what's not. We've taken like some of our favorite movies, and then we've paired them with other movies that are similar. Yeah, that we do still like. Yeah, we still like them. Um, but what, well, yeah, so what we're doing is um, going through this bracket and eliminating and seeing basically what we think the best movies uh, that we have come up with are. Yeah, and we're going to pick not the best movie, definitely not the best movie. This would not hold up in any kind of court of law or I would fathom to guess even like film class. Uh, it's just we're going to figure out what our favorite movie is between the two of us. Yeah, any any um, bracket that has Mr. Morgorium's Wonder Emporium on it probably <laughs> isn't going to be, like, highly sought out or sought mm, after. Probably. You never but know. It's a good movie. I like it. It's a good movie. Maybe it's, like, the best movie and we just didn't know it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll find out. Okay, uh, so we're doing your first set of 16 today, is that right? Yeah, my first set, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that, probably 16, yeah. It, it's 16, because each of us did 32, and it's just the top half of yours, so. Yeah, well, I, my brain doesn't work like that. Okay, well, <laughs> oops, oh well, too much math for Josh. Yeah, so have you have you had any time to think about the movies on here? Watch any ones that you haven't seen or anything? Yeah, I, I did watch one of them that I hadn't seen. It was the only one that was available on a streaming service that I actually have a subscription to, um, okay. which was, uh, it was 42. I had not seen 42. Uh, oh, really? But, yeah. Uh, let's go through our first pairing. Joshua, explain the first pairing to us. Okay, so uh, this is, um, I back when I, we made this bracket, I was thinking about Pixar movies. Um, these are my two favorite Pixar movies that have come out in the last few years. Uh, the first one is Coco, um, which I absolutely love and adore. Um, I will pull up some information in case you haven't heard about this movie. Let's see what Google says. 
Okay, I'm going to completely, uh, you know, just plagiarize Wikipedia here. That's 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 a joke. Um, so it's, it's Coco is 2017, made by Pixar Animation Studios. And it stars Anthony Gonzalez, Gail Garcia Bernal, um, and it was directed by Lee Unkrich, who's I'm pretty sure he's a yeah he is a he's a Pixar veteran, uh, and it's just it's really 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 good. Uh, and then it's versus Soul, which came out in 2020. Uh, it was the first streaming Pixar one. They didn't release it in theaters; they just released it on streaming. That one's 2020. It stars. Jamie Foxx, Tina Fey, Graham Norton, Rachel House, Ellis Braga. Yeah, uh, it's it's a really cool one. Uh, uh, I think these are both very interesting in the way that they tackle culture um, and kind of the difference in it with uh, different societies that aren't really at the forefront of a lot of animation, especially. Um, yeah, but I want to know what you kind of think of both of these movies and then where which one do you think won? I have to go off of my memory. It's been a couple of years since I've seen both of these, um, but I do remember really, really liking Coco, and I've seen just the very ending where, like, he's singing to the grandma a couple of times, just isolated, and it always makes me cry every single time. It's so every time. cute. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm crying about it, thinking right now. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's got a really, really Coco. I should say has got a really tight. Uh, What's the word? Thesis in terms of what it's trying to say about the nature of family and about remembrance and, you know, like ancestral honor and that kind of thing. Uh, Soul, I can't quite say the same for. I really do still like Soul, but uh, it's not quite as entrenched in culture. Like, it feels it feels like a very individualistic film. Do you know what I'm saying? It's what you're saying. So where where Coco really embodies the culture and the idea behind like Dia de los Muertos um, and this very Mexican culture. And it kind of steeps you in it. Right. Um, so it's, it's very much about Miguel and his family, but it uses the setting to tell the story. And it does that wonderfully. Whereas soul is much more focused on the main character, Joe Gardner mm-hmm. and on his individual quest for yeah, it's, it's very personal and while joe is very steeped in his culture like he's really big in the local jazz scene and like he teaches at the local high school and like he really just like loves his life and the way he's living it it doesn't feel as steeped in that culture to me yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think this is something that i've seen talked about online the difference you know where soul has a lot of black culture especially specifically new york black culture uh that's in the movie and um how that is portrayed and it's not necessarily the at the forefront i've seen some takes on the internet where that's a good thing and some takes where that's not such a good thing so that's really interesting to me um you know the decision to specifically not do a movie that was based on that culture necessarily does that make sense yeah no totally it's more based more on just joe's individual journey yeah for sure so something that uh, was interesting, I have actually watched both of these movies pretty recently, uh, not for this podcast at all, just because that's what we ended up watching, me and my girlfriend, Kendall. What happened, What we were talking about this, and we kind of we came, we came to the conclusion that Soul is sort of an animated movie for adults, right? In the way that, you know, there are some animated movies that are very crass, or like, you know, they're like adult-rated animated movies. This is an animated movie, a Pixar movie, where the story is for an adult, right? Uh, 
it is about your purpose and what it means to have a purpose in society, um, finding meaning in your life from the small things, right? And those are things that wouldn't necessarily connect to a child. That's, you know, I actually, that's a really, really good point. That's like, soul is so mature in its themes and like what it's trying to do. Uh, and I, I, that's like one of the reasons that I really did love soul was that it is doing that. Like it's taking a little bit more of a mature adult storyline and like not dumbing it down, but kind of simplifying it for kids and illustrating how this process works, which I really, really do love. Yeah. And it's based on Pete Doctor's really kind of his own experiences. This movie was written and directed by Pete Doctor. Um, uh, of, you know, he'd, he'd won several awards at, uh, with Pixar and he was kind of living his best life. And he thought, what am I missing? You know, what, what else is there in life? And that's where this movie has its roots. Um, I, we've been talking a lot about soul. So I'm going to switch over to Coco. Coco, I'm going to spoil the bracket for you, for everyone here. Um, Coco wins this round for me. It is far and away my favorite Pixar movie. It may just remain my favorite Pixar movie of all time, unless they manage to make something. I do not cry. I'm not a cry kind of person. Um, I cry or almost cry like at four different points during this movie. I would love for you to point out which points those are. Okay, so um, I'm trying to remember the last time we watched the movie, what the points were. I know for sure I cry every single time that uh, he sings the song to his grandmother. Of course. Uh, Remember me. It's so beautiful. Then every time they realize that their family uh, gets me every time. And this time, this last time that I watched it, the thing that really uh, hit hit my heart was when he says, I'm proud that we're family to his great-grandpa, you know, who has been disgraced by the family for so long, right? I was like, oh, that's so wonderful, right? Totally. Oh, yeah. That's such a good film. I really do love this film. <laughs> it's so, so beautiful. And it's like, it's kind of holistically beautiful, right? It looks beautiful. The story is wonderful. It tells a great message about family from a very unique cultural perspective. Yeah. So I would say that I would say that Coco wins that one. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, I will agree and we'll have Coco move on to the next round. Woo. All right. Okay, next up, uh, taking a completely different turn here. <laughs> Um, this is remember the Titans versus forty two. So what I want to say here. this is like uh, like racial tension in the South mixed with sports, okay, right? So yeah. this is like a sports race. Um, so going into this bracket, I remember I had not actually watched forty two. Oh really? <laughs> I had only seen one p- very pivotal scene from forty two. Uh, specifically the scene where Pee Wee like wraps his arm around Jackie and says, like, we're just playing ball. Oh yeah. Oh that's that was a really good scene. I really like that. At his home at his home stadium, right, where he like lots of people that knew him would see him. Right. And like that solidarity was really cool to me. Um so going into the movie, uh, I should say this is a twenty thirteen film and it stars Chadwick Boseman, Harrison Ford, Nicole Bihari, Christopher Maloney, Andre Holland, Lucas Black, Hamish Linklater, and Ryan Merriman. And it's directed by Brian Helgeland. Brian Helgeland. Uh, I want to hear more about what you thought of this movie when you watched it this week. 
Yeah, um, I was trying to decide which of the two I would pick between these, and I think what it really comes down to for me is uh, the performances. Either it's Denzel Washington in Remember the Titans, right, and then uh, it's Chadwick Boseman in Forty Two. Like it's been, it has been a few years since I've seen Remember the Titans, um, but I think that Chadwick Boseman's performance in Forty Two. There's one scene where I think it's right after horrendously racist tirade that alan tudyk's character gives while jackie is playing like while he's at bat like just seeing him break down afterward with the stress of having to keep a calm head in this whole thing because he knows it has been made extremely clear throughout the movie that if he does not take this in his stride he's not going to be able to open up baseball for the rest of the african-american diaspora which and like you can tell that that is something that matters very, very deeply to Jackie mm-hmm. because, you know, like he's spent his entire life playing baseball. He like he clearly loves the game and he clearly wants to make it better for everybody else. Um, but he's also you see very like it was I think it's the very first scene in the movie that you see. He's also very reticent to endure <laughs> uh you know racial discrimination which rightfully right i mean like just to see him break down in that uh that hallway just screaming and crying and just like with like all of his soul it is so affecting and is so emotional and i love chadwick boseman he's he was a fantastic actor again rest in peace um Mm -hmm. and i think that's really what it comes down to for me because like i don't know it feels kind of interesting with both of these like especially with 42 i could tell very easily that it was written by a white man and i looked it up it is it was written by a white man and like it's got a very very white view of race but it is the performance and it's the same thing with remember the titans but it's the performances from denzel and chadwick yeah that really mm-hmm. elevate that text those are yeah those are really the parts that make the movies uh, i want to tell you something interesting about that scene which is that it's not historically accurate uh, of course um, it's not no <laughs> because because there's actually no record of um jackie robinson ever breaking uh like uh well, and, yeah and like that's it clear in the movie too right like nobody yeah, would ever I, know that he had broken because it was exactly a really the, director, the director put it in there right because he was like there's no way that he couldn't have broken totally at some point in 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 private alone right um, so that's really interesting, you know, to see how he presented himself and how how stoic he was on the field. Yeah, so uh, I should I should introduce Remember the Titans as the two thousand uh, from two thousand, the year two thousand, uh, directed by Boaz Yekin, um, written by Gregory Allen Howard, and stars Denzel Washington, Will Patton, Donald Faison, and Nicole Ari Parker, and it also stars some other people, right? Like uh, Ryan Gosling has a pretty small role. There are some very famous actors in this movie that went on to do great things, and they were very small. Yeah, remember the Titans was a big movie in its time. It was. It was really big. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I think the thing that I love about both these movies is how it portrays the teams overcoming their prejudices right specifically specifically the white uh, members of the team overcoming the prejudices for jackie um as jackie proves shows that he is good at baseball and a better man outside of baseball right that's really kind of the key uh, as well as those performances i think neither of these movies would have been made without denzel washington as herman boone or chadwick Boseman as jackie robinson but I, I will say I have seen 42 more recently, and I think I like it more 
at the moment. Hooray. Okay. Yay. Cool. So that's two down. Yeah. We have Interstellar versus The Martian. Um, you've seen Interstellar. Space films. I've seen, yeah, I have seen Interstellar. I have not seen The Martian. Uh, I have read exactly one of Andy Weir's books, and I didn't like it. So I don't know. <laughs> I've heard that it's, uh, the book that I've read is, what is it called? Artemis? It's, or Project Artemis or something? No, that's the uh, new one. That's uh, Project Hail Mary. Um, the the second one is the one that I read, which was released a couple years ago, and it's set on a colony on the moon, and I didn't like the way he wrote the female main character. But like I've heard that the abortion is really good, so I've been meaning to try it. <laughs> so, so I want to know, before, before we even talk about Interstellar, what's your favorite Christopher Nolan movie? Because I know that you have a very complicated relationship with uh, the Batman trilogy. I think everyone does now. Yes, it's true. <laughs> now that the Batman 2022 has come out, and shows just how good Batman can be, right? We are all looking back at these mid-2000 Batman movies and saying, okay, there were definitely some flaws, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I still do think it's a pretty solid trilogy of movies. It's a very solid trilogy. And, you know, you can appreciate it for a lot more than just the writing, right? Even yeah. The, you know, it, it's very beautiful to look at. Um, you you can definitely understand how Batman is a hero and where his more moral failings are as a character. Yeah, and that's for sure. And I don't, very good. I don't think that the Batman would have been made in 2021. If the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy had not come first, I really do think that it kind of kickstarted that discourse mm-hmm. for what it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Batman trilogy is not my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Um, my favorite Christopher Nolan movie is actually on my side of the bracket and it's inception. It's always been my favorite. It was the first one I ever saw by him and it remains my favorite in my heart. So, okay. So, uh, Explain your thoughts on Interstellar, and then I'll kind of try to counter with Martian, and we'll see if we can have a little debate on this one. Sure. Okay. Um, this is going to be hard, I'm <laughs> or maybe it's going to be really easy because I know that Interstellar is like your favorite film of like all time. Uh, the thing that I really, really love about should we do the the explanation for Interstellar? Yeah. So I have a pull up. Twenty fourteen film. Okay. Yeah. Twenty fourteen film. Uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, stars uh, Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, Mackenzie Foy, Timothy Chalamet, Matt Damon, etc., etc. Um, I always forget that Timothy Chalamet is in this because it's one of his the first things he has ever was, done. Yeah, he was a really young kid when it happened. He was so tiny. So tiny. Anyways, that's not important. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Interstellar is all about. I think the thing that really struck me with Interstellar first was. Uh, the feeling of desperation that you get because I mm-hmm. knew that it was a science fiction movie and I knew it was something to do with time travel because Christopher Nolan really likes to screw with time but I didn't realize that it was also an apocalypse story like I did not mm. realize going into it initially that you know it was going to be all about this you know like this is humanity's last hope like our crops are failing we need something to help us and this is why this man is going into space and I think it really adds uh, I don't know, a Cormac McCarthy-ish kind of feeling. Like, uh-huh. I, haven't re- I haven't read The Road, but, like, that's always what people reference. Like, when they're talking about this kind of, like, really, really tender apocalypse story where, uh-huh. you know, it's, like, you know, like, you can say The Hunger Games because I feel like that's what most people in our generation reference is, like, their first real dystopia. It's nothing like The Hunger Games. It's just 
pure desperation. It's humanity working together and it's the greatest time of need, which I really, really, really love. Um, but it also, like, it has so much nuance in the way that it discusses this. Um, like, especially with Jessica Chastain's character, because she um, plays the daughter of Matthew McConaughey. You know, Matthew McConaughey goes up into space and he's stuck in this time vortex where it's been like what maybe a couple of days for him but like years and decades are passing on earth and you see jessica chastain uh you see her character struggle to come to grips with the fact that her father is saving humanity it's he is going to save her life he she he is going to save the life of her you know not i don't think she has kids but uh like her nieces and nephews and everybody that she holds dear but she has such a hard time referencing and uh, not referencing, uh, reconciling the relationship she has with her father because she resents him deeply for leaving her and she misses him deeply. And, but like she knows in her heart that what he's doing is good, but it still hurts. And I think that there's a great deal of nuance that Christopher Nolan brings to that conversation. And I just, I love it. I think it's so good. I think it's so well done. So I think, I think Interstellar, this is one of my favorite movies because. It does what I love happens with movies where um, to make a great movie like this, it's really the, the, the foundation is a simple meal well made. Right? It's basically let's have fun with some physics on these planets and we will tie emotions to it. We'll make you care about this in a way. It's an interesting way. Right. And what that is, is all of the physics and all of the cool stuff that happens is really cool and really interesting and will catch your attention. But the reason you'll stay and the reason it'll linger in your mind is the relationship that um, Cooper has with his daughter, Murph. And that's really the heart is that relationship because. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. Uh, it's, it's, it's the same thing to me as uh, Outer Wilds. It's why Outer Wilds is my favorite video game because it's a simple meal. Well made, right? Uh, do fun physics, do fun stuff with physics in space. And then. Will make you care about it in a beautiful and wonderful way. So, The Martian. The Martian is a 2015 science fiction film. It was directed by Ridley Scott, uh, who is famous. I can't recall ever seeing anything else that Ridley Scott's ever made, but I know that he's famous. Yeah, right? um, I believe one of those names that you hear. What is it? Alien is the big one, I think. Oh yeah, that's right. He did make Alien. Yeah. Um, Not that we've which seen I've heard Alien, is really good. But... <laughs> never seen Alien. Heard it's really good. Yeah. Um, it stars Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, Kristen Wiig, Jeff Daniels, Michael uh, Pena, uh, Kate Mara, Sean Bean, Sebastian Stan, Axel Henney, uh, Chitawel, Chitawel Ejiofor, and Donald Glover. Wow, there's a lot of famous names stars The Martian. I never watched it. Chiwetel. It's Chiwetel. Yeah, Chiwetel Ejiofor. And Donald Glover's in it too, which he's great. Yeah, I love Donald Glover. Yes, you should watch this movie. Um, basically, this also does a pretty simple thing. It takes two. It's there's two different stories, right? On one hand, you have a survivalist story uh, where Mark Watney is stuck on the uh, Mars after a mission goes wrong, and it goes through. You know, these are some of the scientific things that he would be experiencing. You know, his body starts to break down because he's on a planet with a lot lower gravity. No, this is how he, you know, makes food for himself. This is how he does all these things. And it's really cool and really scientific. On the other side, you have almost a heist movie. Okay. Yeah. Where the thing that they're heisting is him from Mars. Oh, that's kind of fun. I do like that. Yeah, I do like heist movies. It's very much in the same vein as Apollo 13, 
mm-hmm. where they're like, you know, this this has a very slim chance of working, but we think we can make it work if we do these things. And it's got like kind of the the emotional heart of the movie to it. It's really cool. There's one really awesome scene where they're able to actually um, communicate with him because of they have two different robots. One of the robots is on Mars and one of the robots is on Earth and they're connected. So they're like when one is pointing one direction, it'll be pointing the same direction on Earth. But the signal takes like 60 minutes to travel. And so they set out like communication where the robot will be pointing at different points so that they're able to communicate. It's so cool. Mm. So scientific and wonderful. I think it's a fantastic movie. I really enjoyed watching it. Um, That being said, I think Interstellar wins this one. I think it does too. Not that, I mean, you have me intrigued about the Martian now because I really do love myself a good heist movie, but it's really good. It's like a scientific sort of heist is maybe not the most correct, but like it's, it's fantastic and superb. Cool. Interstellar moves on. Uh, our next mashup, Dune 2021 versus Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Okay, so which one of the... Have you seen either of these? Uh, I saw Dune. I have not seen Star Trek. Okay, what did you think of Dune? Uh, I really liked Dune, actually. I thought it was very beautiful. Um, I have tried to read Dune a few times, and each time I kind of fall off <laughs> just getting lost because uh herbert was a lot of things and he was very very good at plotting politics and like these dense political uh scenes it's boring as sin to read i'm so sorry to anybody <laughs> that likes dune i fall asleep every single time but i do have to say i think that denny Vin- uh Vin- i can't pronounce it i took french in high school yeah, uh, yeah. Denis was able to condense all of that perfectly. Like it was, it's exactly what you need to take away. It's almost like taking, you know, what's another boring book, right? Like The Prince by Machiavelli. Let's say, like boring book politics. Anyone who loves The Prince by Machiavelli, I don't know who you are, but taking that right and making it into an interesting story about a prince is kind of what it's like. Right? Yeah. No. Exactly. Um, yeah, and making it, Go making ahead. it beautiful, too, mm-hmm. right? Every shot is a painting. It, almost, it, it you know, is just gorgeous. Yeah, holy cow. Yeah, and it's it was yeah, and you get really get the sense. There was one shot that I really really loved. I think it's the first shot um, that almost perfectly mirrored every single piece of like fan art I've ever seen for Dune, which is just you know Paul facing down the sandworm for the very first time. Is it Paul? I think it's Paul. I'm not sure. But like whoever, like, you know, just like one person standing in front of the sandworm. And just that gaping maw of knives and just feeling so small. And he captured it so well. And like, I know mm-hmm. like that's got to be like mostly done by um, like CGI artists. Gorgeous. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Gorgeous. Just so beautiful. And it was so beautiful. And you really, really get the sense of like you understand the desperation that uh, House Arrakis has in trying to, you know, take over this spice operation and you understand what's at stake and you understand what the Bene Gesserit are trying to do. And you understand, you know, what that Paul is just like a kid who's being forced into all of these terrible things by all these powerful people around him. And 
I th- it captures it so perfectly and it does it in just such a condensed little packet that I don't think I'm ever going to have to read the first third of Dune anymore, which is great. <laughs> I can read the other parts. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey. Yeah, I think I did it so well and it was able to summarize so much of what makes Dune spectacular for people, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and like watching Dune, I could tell that Denis loves the book and that he wanted to communicate that love to others, which I think is yeah. an excellent recipe for any adaptation. It's fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah so that's a 2021 movie um, directed by uh, Denny Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Villeneuve? <laughs> you can't do it anyway. Villeneuve? Uh, Villeneuve, I think, yeah. Okay, Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stolen Sarsgaard, David Bautista, uh, Henderson, Zendaya, Cheng Chen, uh, Charlotte Rampling, Jason Momoa, and Javier Bardem. Oh, Javier Bardem was in that. I studied cast for that one too. Really, really good. Also, can I say I really love Oscar Isaac's performance as uh, the Harkonnen or the head of uh, House Arrakis? He's so good. Mm, He's amazing. He's so good. Uh, du- Duke Atreides, that's the one. Why did I say? Yeah, Ludo Atreides, yeah. Um, it's honestly, I think I, t- I talked to you about this after, like, Having seen the Star Wars movie that he was not utilized well in, I was like, wow, it's amazing to see what he can do with a good script. And that got me really excited for seeing him in Moon Knight, which I enjoyed. But uh, how many how many uh, pop culture references can I put in one sentence? That's what I'm trying to do here. <laughs> too many. Yeah, Oscar is a fantastic actor. Anyway. I've put that one up against the 1982 American sci-fi classic Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. This is directed by Nicholas Mayer, uh, written with a story by Steve Harvey, Harvey, Harv, maybe, Bennett, and Jack B. Sowards. I really should have like gone through and looked up these people beforehand so I could get their names down. But And it stars, it stars of course, uh, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Duhan, Walter Koenig, George Takei, Nichelle Nichols, B.B. Betch, uh, Merritt Butrick, Paul Winfield, Christy Alley, and Ricardo Montaban as Khan in one of the best performances I've ever seen. Uh, Khan is just really, really good in this movie. Um, have you seen this movie? I have not seen this movie, but I'll tell you what I have seen. I have seen uh, the Star Trek, the new Star Trek trilogy, uh, where Khan yes. plays a different recurring character. And from what I gather, they are very different characters uh, as portrayed by <laughs> uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> because I was obsessed with Benedict Cumberbatch when I was in like my very tail end of high school. It was really interesting to see. I, I remember I watched that movie and that was my very first Star Trek movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and that kind of got me too. into Star Trek. <laughs> that, got me, that got me into Star Trek. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, okay, I can definitely see the faults in this movie, right? Specifically, where where it copies Wrath of Khan and where it doesn't, mm-hmm. right? Which is really um, interesting, actually. I think that J.J. Abrams did that up, uh, purposefully. Like, there's yes. a lot of mirroring that from, like, things, the things that I know of the Wrath of Khan are very interesting. So what do you know of the Wrath of Khan? Uh, the only thing I know is that uh, Spock supposedly dies at the end of it, and then they have to go searching for Spock, and that's the plot of the third or the fourth movie. Yeah, so they make... Uh, I'm not going to get too much into this plot, because it's kind of bizarre. Yeah. Uh, they end up making a new planet. Uh, Spock dies at the end, mm-hmm. and they um, launch, basically, his body in 
uh, into like onto the planet. Okay, and then too. the teaser at the end is that the thing that they launched him in, which is like the casing of a missile or something, mm-hmm. or maybe I can't remember for sure, um, is like oh cracked open, right? So like oh he's oh he's, he's alive. gone, he's oh, actually alive. Oh yeah. Um, and then what, what's happened is the uh, the planet itself is actually like going through its life stages really quickly, and it like resurrected him. Oh, fascinating. So, like, okay. He's going through his stages really quickly. Anyways, yeah. nice. Yeah, see, like, even just in that, there's a lot of, uh, like, I I don't want to say parallels, but, like, things, I guess, that Bad Robot borrowed for uh, Star Mm. Trek. I don't even remember what the second Star Trek movie is called for the new Uh, trilogy. It's into into Darkness. That's right, Star Trek Into Darkness, which I I really do actually like this new Star Trek trilogy. It was, like, what first got me into Star Trek, and I'm very, very slowly going through the rest of it now, like, all of the older stuff. But, uh... Correct. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like I said, very slowly. Um, but, but you know, like the missile casing, like that's a plot point that they use in Into Darkness. And, uh, mm-hmm. it, but it's, it's Kirk that dies instead of Spock, but they're able to resurrect him and everything. And yeah. there's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to me how, because like it's, it's canonical in uh, the first movie that, you know, this is kind of like an alternate universe, like, Spock mm-hmm. from OG Star Trek shows up, and Leonard Nimoy has a little cameo, which is really cute. And yeah, it's, it's, and it's kind of fun to see where they borrowed and where I, I think using the alternate universe as kind of like the catch-all to explain why things are different is really good. I think that they mm-hmm. did a really—it's just such an excellent excuse to write whatever yeah. you want. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. and like you borrow freely from the source material, right? Yeah, exactly. Without necessarily tying things the same way that they did before. Exactly. Um, so what's really interesting about this movie is the way that it portrays uh, no-win scenarios. Um, it starts off with this um, um, this lieutenant who's commanding the USS Enterprise on a mission to, to save the damaged ship Kobayashi Maru. Yes, which is also a reference in the new one. Anyway, go if on. You know, if, you know, if you know pop culture, you know what the Kobayashi Maru is. Uh, ends up being a test in which there is a no-win scenario. Uh, the, no matter what you do, you will end up dying or failing, and it's supposed to teach the uh, the trainees that sometimes in life there are there's no way to win and get everything you want, right? Uh, and what what ends up happening is Khan goes and uh, ends up basically Khan is a mastermind, right? He's this incredible intellectual genius. Um, to the point that there's no way that the Enterprise can easily beat him. They're they're on the back foot the entire movie, pretty much. And in the end, they're able to get the get the they're able they're able to get their own run on by using three dimensional combat, which Khan is uh, inexperienced in because he's from the like 1990s canonically, so he's used to like two dimensional combat. It's really weird uh, and doesn't make a whole ton of sense, but. Um, what ends up happening is Spock has to restore the war power in the engine room so that they can get away from the ship that is a con ship that's about to explode. And to do that, he has to sacrifice his life. Um, and he tells, he tells um, Kirk that this is his solution to the Kobayashi Maru. Like, it's sort of a trolley problem situation. Uh, or do you save the one or do you save the many, right? Mm-hmm. The thing that he says in the movie is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. 
so that's a, it's a really interesting like kind of a moral philosophy problem packaged in a really cool sci-fi space movie nice cool um so being that i have not seen wrath of khan what do you think passes through i am going to say here i think the dune should pass through that being said i have not seen the wrath of khan in like eight or ten years fair so if i were to sit down with both of the movies and watch them both again my perspective might be different but that's what i'm going for for now okay you know what that's okay i think it's going to be really interesting to put uh to pit uh two very heady very cinematic uh space movies against each other so it'll be good Mm-hmm. This is, this is, I was why I was cursing myself as we were talking about making this episode. Oh. <laughs> because I just I just put so many good movies together and it just is not It's yeah, we we've got another one coming up in a couple here that's really gonna kill us. Yeah. Why did I make these decisions hard, right? So why did hard. I do this to myself? Why? Okay. This is the one this is the one that I've been thinking about all week. Okay, yes. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly versus 1917. Uh Uh-huh. Have you seen either of these? I have not, unfortunately. I wasn't able to find either of them on a streaming service for free. (laughs) That's too bad. I know, it sucks, but... uh. Good, Bad, the Ugly a while ago was free on YouTube, but it's not anymore, which is unfortunate. Unfortunate. So, uh, walk me through why you you pitted these two movies together. So, Good and the Bad, the Ugly uh, is a 1966 um, Italian epic spaghetti western, right? Mm-hmm. Directed by Sergio Leone. I don't know how to say his name. I'm so sorry. It's, it's Italian. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> That's why it's called the Spaghetti Western, is because he was an Italian yes. director. He was, and it was actually filmed in Spain. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's, that's where they filmed most of their spaghetti westerns because it looks like the western United States. It's fair. Lots of desert. Stars Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, Lee Van Cleef, Aldo Gufri, Antonio Casas, Rada Rasimov, Aldo Samburel, Enzo Petito, Luigi Pastilli, Livio Lorenzen, Al Molac, Sergio Mendizabal, Molino Rojo, Lorenzo Rob. Bledo and Mario Brega. You probably didn't have to hear all of those names, but it's important <laughs> to know that this is, in fact, a spaghetti western. Yeah. So everyone except for the main characters basically is played by an Italian person. Nice. <laughs> yeah, because that's you know that's who you can get as extras if you're an Italian filmmaker, right? Yes. Uh, so I think the reason that I put these together. Um, is because these are the two rated R movies that I've seen. <laughs> Fair. The good and the bad and the ugly should not actually be rated R. They should do this thing where, like, every forty years or so, they look back at a film and say, "What is it actually rated?" Recalibrate it. Yeah. Because <laughs> it'd be like, yeah, we could have a whole conversation about the flaws of the American rating system. But go on. Yeah, it could be like if they went back and re-rated it, it could easily be like a soft PG thirteen. There's some violence, and that's it, right? It doesn't even show anything that bad. There's not that bad of a language, all things considered, that I noticed, at least. Um, This versus 1917, which is the only real rated R movie that I've seen. And if you've watched, you know why it's rated R. 
2019 war film. It was produced by Sam Mendes and directed by Sam Mendes and written by him. Uh, Sarge, Sarge George McKay, Dean Charles Chapman, Mark Strong, Andrew Scott, Richard Madden, Claire de Burke, Colin Firth, and Benedict Cumberbatch, among others. Uh, they're beautiful. They're both... Um, every single... There's this thing that happens in The Good, The Bad, the bad and The Ugly. I watched this with Ethan, and the thing that we talked about was that um, Sergio was really good at stretching a moment out almost to the moment of unbelief. Almost almost to the moment where you you just started, you know, you're almost like, oh, okay, this is almost too much, and then he ends it. And so he preserves he preserves this beautiful tension throughout the entire movie, doing different things like this, right? Basically, there's this character, it's set during the Civil War. And it features both sides, so at various times, the character's on both sides of the war uh, in various capacities. But they're not really invested in the war, which is part of the reason why this is a subversion of expectations. Because none of the characters are really that good, that bad, and that ugly, provided that you look at the wider perspective of what's going on here, right? There is a war going on here. There are people that are dying. Um, and these three men, are all that, that they're interested in is gold. Um, so they, uh, they're they all looking for this gold. Uh, it's buried in a cemetery. And uh, the ugly eventually learns the location of the cemetery. And the good learns the specific grave that it's buried at. So they have to work together kind of to figure, to get to the cemetery together. And the bad is pursuing them, them the whole way. And there's a scene where the ugly gets to the gravestones and he's running through the cemetery. It's the beautiful circular cemetery. Uh, and he's running through and it's playing this music and it's, you know, kind of exacerbating his feelings about uh, being overtaken by this lust for the gold. And it's beautiful. It's switching back and forth and getting more intense and the cuts are happening faster and faster. And then it uh, ends and you're just left with this feeling of awe. The same thing happens at the final shootout between the three characters. It's really, really cool. Uh, it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and just draws your attention out. So cool and so wonderful and so beautifully. It's such a cool thing that, that, that they were able to do with this movie. Nice. Uh, so that's why that's why I like the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what about nineteen seventeen? <laughs> so nineteen seventeen um, is like Sam Mendes was. It's like he was just he was like he was like let's make let's make a piece of art and because i work in film let's make it a movie i guess <laughs> it's kind of how it feels mm-hmm. um the thing that's really incredible about it is that it's shot like it is a single uh single shot like, like it's a single take right that was the big thing yeah, a single yeah. take uh, it's actually a few different takes spliced together. Of course, I mean, <laughs> which they're all hidden really, really carefully and really in really cool ways, right? But every single time that they show a scene or set something up, the cinematography is fantastic. Looking at the perspectives and the things that happen, it's so cool. The thing that 
1917 really presents is this feeling of stretching out the war, right? And going from the start of the state of innocence, when the, the two main characters are Lance Corporal uh, Will Schofield Shof- and Lance Corporal Tom Blake, and they go kind of from this like innocence right to where they're they haven't had a lot of battle experience you can see their the uniforms are kind of clean they're nicer and they're sent on this mission and by the end the journey that specifically will showfield has gone through you feel for him and you feel like you've gone on this journey with him which is something that i don't think a lot of movies can really capture is this feeling of being beside someone the whole time as they're going through this journey yeah i've talked about these two movies for too long so uh Let's see. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna elevate 1917. Okay, sounds good. No, no hate on the good, bad, the ugly. I love it. It's fantastic. But 1917 just really is beautiful. Nice. Okay, so this one, I have seen both of these movies, and you have seen both of these movies, and these are both movies that we both love immensely, and I think this is going to be very difficult for us. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and uh, The Prince of Egypt, two marvels of modern animation. Uh, Do you want to introduce us? (laughs) Yeah, so Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, 2018 computer animated superhero film directed by Bob Proschetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Locke. Rothman with a screenplay by Phil Lord and Rodney Rodney Rothman. Uh, starring Shamik Moore, Jake Johnson, Haley Steinfeld, Marshala Ali, Brian Tyree Henry, Lily Tomlin, Luna Lorne Velez, John Mullaney, Kimiko Glenn, Nicholas Cage, and Liev Schreiber. Uh, versus The Prince of Egypt, which is a 1998 animated musical about the Book of Exodus. It's directed by Brenda, Brenda Chapman, Steve Hickner, and Simon Wells. Written by Philip Lazebnik. And stars Val Kilmer, Ray Fiennes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin, and Martin Short. I'm hesitant to even ask this. Do you have a way you're leaning? Honestly, whenever I think that I am positive on one, I will immediately think about all the good things that the other movie has provided for me and for society. It's really, really hard to choose. Okay, um, let's talk through good points on each, and then we'll see if we can get anywhere. Like, I think the thing that gets me with both films is just the meticulous attention to detail. With Spider-Verse, they recorded the soundtrack, and then they had uh, a de- professional DJ come in and remix some of the tracks, because like they really wanted him to be steeped in, you know, Black and Hispanic culture details in the animation where like if you look really closely where like you can see the little tiny CYMK dots, or it's like, you know, the pink and the blue and the yellow. In lace because they wanted it to look like you were looking at like a comic book panel and the more that you learn about this film the more astounded you are just at the at level of detail that they put into it but then like they kind of also do the same thing for the prince of egypt like they consulted <laughs> with so many experts in writing the prince of egypt from you know all sorts of sects of christianity and judaism and uh islam you know, which are all books that uh, ascribe to uh, this story in Exodus. And, like, it's gorgeous. And, like, and the music is amazing. <laughs> like, I just, I, I could gush about both of these movies all day. And it's so hard. If I had to pick one, I guess, if we're looking at it, it's going to go up against 1917 in our semifinals. If it has to go up against 1917, I think it's going to be Prince of Egypt, just because I think it's a little bit more on the artsy side. That's fair. That's a good point. Yeah. Like, not that the Spider-Verse isn't beautiful and wonderful, and, like, it's impossible to compare these two movies. They're both too good. Not to mention the music, right? The music of Prince of Egypt. I will say, I have listened to some of the Broadway soundtrack for the Prince of Egypt, the stage version, and I think it makes some very good choices. 
to elevate the story uh, like even higher than the movie does. I think it's so close. It's like one point of difference, but I think I'm going to give it to the Prince of Egypt here. Okay. Next up, I have uh, To Kill a Mockingbird versus Selma. Nice. Walk us through it. Have you seen either of these movies? Uh, I have seen To Kill a Mockingbird. It has been a few years. Uh, I believe I last watched it in my high school English class in like ninth grade. So Wonderful. Yep. Um, That's the last time I've seen this movie, too. I mostly was looking for a movie that I thought could go up against Selma. Uh, Selma is a 2014 historical drama film. It was directed by Ava DuVernay, uh, written by Paul Webb, and it stars David Oyelowo, Carmen Ejogo, Tom Wilkinson, Giovanni Ribisi, Alessandro Nivola, Cuba Gooding Jr., Tim Roth, and Oprah Winfrey. Compare this to... These are very different movies Mm -hmm. in so many ways. Directed by Robert Mulligan, with a screenplay by Horton Foote, and it stars Gregory Peck, Mary Badham, Philip Alford, Ruth White, Paul Fix, Brock Peters, Frank Overton, and James Anderson. I first watched Selma on an airplane flight. I had, like, an out-of-body experience with this movie, where I was able to completely forget that I was on a flight, watching it on, like, a little six-inch screen, and I was able to just completely be absorbed by what was going on. Um, I think that it portrays Martin Luther King's struggle so beautifully. Um, the terrorism that is being enacted against African Americans in the 60s was horrific and horrifying in a way that made it so that I couldn't pull away. Um, I had to be present and I, I had to try to try to understand what these people were going through, even though I've never been through anything like this at all. The problems that uh, Martin Luther King was having with his marriage um, and with specifically with the FBI trying to disrupt his marriage that doesn't take a backseat by any means it definitely shows tries to show MLK in all of his the march that happens the somewhat to Montgomery march is beautiful and uh, the amount of people that come from all over right to participate and to stand with these african-americans that are going through this in alabama at this time it's just really really cool and really amazing and everyone does such a good job of acting in this movie being said i think that you know it's still able to do a lot of what to kill mockingbird isn't which is tie you emotionally to the struggle uh that is going on during the segregation period and i and I think that that's something that To Kill a Mockingbird, To Kill a Mockingbird kind of struggles with, but in like a white way, <laughs> if that makes sense. Because like the whole thing about To Kill a Mockingbird is, you know, it's looking out on other people. And while you may not be able to fully know what they are experiencing, to be able to, you know, extend some kind of sympathy to them, to not do more harm than you do good. There's a lot of to do. There was a lot of to do recently when, uh, Go set a Watchman came out. You know, it was revealed that oh, Atticus Finch was a racist all along. It's just that he was really, really good at his job. It didn't t- entirely take me by surprise because you kind of mm-hmm. get that vibe in the original To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, n- not that you know, like he's being very noble, and it's portrayed as a noble thing that he's doing in you know representing this black man that has been falsely accused of this crime. 
defending this black man, even if he doesn't necessarily agree. Whereas, you know, something like Selma is going to take a very much more, like, it's, it's a very, it's kind of nuanced in its portrayal, but I think something in Selma portrays that far better. It just portrays issues of race a lot better. I say this having not seen it, maybe I should shut up. Uh, but like there, there is a very tangible. Even just watching the trailer for this, which I did do, there's just it just it feels so much more different to me. Selma does than To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. It does. That's why I think I think Selma's you know despite any uh, issues that it has as a movie or as a an, a portrayal of history, I think it is able to tell a much clearer story that is able to be connected with right from a perspective from. Uh, Ava DuVernay and Paul Webb, right? So I think that's why Selma would win this one. Yes, Selma's moving on. Woo! Okay, and then our last matchup is completely, this is so much more different in tone than the last one. Yeah, I kind of felt bad because half of my movies are like fun, goofy stuff, and half of my movies are these very serious historical dramas, right? I just I have a very wide taste. Uh, introduce this last matchup to us. Um, so this is I remember we were kind of discussing what we should do in regarding superheroes on my side of the bracket, um, and what this is kind of the platonic ideal of what ended up happening because of that. <laughs> and we'll talk about that more when we get to the second half of my bracket and the problems associated with the superhero movies on that side. This is Lego Batman the movie versus the Batman, uh, the 2022 movie. It is so funny to me that you chose to do these two movies just cause like in, we talked a little bit about the fallout of the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy a little bit, and mm-hmm. which I feel like we should talk about that a little bit more because it was so influential. Like it was like why or, or before the MCU took off, it was the, platonic ideal of superhero movies like it was like nobody had ever seen anything like it before Christopher Nolan was changing the game in terms of superhero movies not only was it the platonic ideal of superhero movies it was like the comic book movie yeah it was like the first time anybody had made anything based off of a comic book that was good yeah right and like like as much as good as movies like the x-men or uh, Spider-Man were they were still very campy, and this was kind of saying, "Hey, it doesn't just have to be campy; it can be very serious and you know, very, very cinematic too." And it's so interesting to me. And then, like in the wake of that, like you've got like everybody was talking about Batman, and everybody is still talking about Batman, and it hasn't ended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my f- personal favorite uh, kind of sum up of this argument uh, was. When the Vlogbrothers, John and Hank Green, did they did a little mini discussion back and forth on their channel about the virtues of Batman. And then Shmoyo Ho turned it into a song. And I think it's a great song. It sums <laughs> it up so nicely. You, you know, this... Excellent. Like, kind of this dichotomy between, uh, you know, personal virtue versus uh, systemic injustice and, like, the ways that Batman may harm or hurt. Uh, and then out of this discussion, there came these two movies... Very extremely different movies. You've got Lego Batman, which satirizes it, which it makes, you know, like makes fun of it to high heaven, um, but is still s- somehow manages to be so endearing and cute and fun. Uh, and then you've got the Batman, which is kind of, 
it feels like if the original Batman trilogy went to high school with me, like during like the like the early 2010s and was really, really into my chemical romance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what the Batman is all about, right? The 2022 film directed by Matt Reeves, written by Matt Reeves, stars Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz, Paul Dano, Jeffrey Wright, John Turturro, Peter Sarsgaard, Andy, Andy Serkis, and Colin Farrell versus the Lego Batman movie, which is directed by Chris McKay. And this screenplay by a bunch of people. I'm not going to go through that whole list. Stars Will Arnett, Zach Galifianakis, Michael Sarah, Rosario Dawson, Ray Fiennes. You can kind of just see just in the cast, right? The difference between these two movies. You have serious, dramatic actors and you have the comedians, right? Not that, not that there's anything wrong with... I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with either one of no, those. No, of course. Right. Both of them have their place. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. It's like just the dichotomy is so funny. Um, so when I saw the Batman this year, I went and saw it in theaters. And what I kind of came out, I came out of it thinking was this is Matt Reeves looking at the uh, looking at the character of Batman and saying, okay, it's the twenty, it's twenty twenty two, or I guess it was like probably twenty twenty or twenty nineteen when they started making it. Um, but you know, it's it we're we're at this point in history where we have kind of collected all of these ideas as a culture and Batman has become kind of an icon. So how can we deconstruct him, uh, deconstruct who Batman has become for a lot of people and how can we, well, like, what do we have to say about that? How can I say something new about this character that has been done to death? There are so many movies. There are so many comics. He's in so much media. How can I say something different about the Batman? He did. It's so beautiful. It taught me something about myself, right? And how I perceive the Batman and how I perceive and how I perceive heroes, right? I was actually thinking about this in regards to, I watched that video that you sent me again about Waymond in everything everywhere all at once, but about how he's not like, he's not like an alpha male kind of aggressive, overbearing kind of human, right? Uh, he fights with love and compassion and active empathy. Yes, exactly. The The video he's talking about, if you're interested, uh, is on the YouTube channel. I believe it's Pop Culture Detective. Yes, uh, and the video, it's Pop Culture Detective, and the video is called Everyone Everywhere Needs Waymond Wang. So if it's such a good video, absolutely watch it. Anyway, continue. So I was, I was comparing that character that I, I have not seen the movie, obviously, uh, but comparing the character that's described to me to uh, the Batman in this movie uh, who starts out, you know, he goes and he beats people up and he's aggressive and he's physical and that's who he is. That's how he shows that he's a hero. Right? He's vengeance. Transforming into a character who uh, realizes that it's not about this idea, right? Um, this is Actually, the movie that first made me like completely and totally understand the idea. If you are inspiring people to do things that are bad, then you need to change what you're doing, right? You need to be better. You need to improve. And so he changes into a hero. He changes. He, he's working with firefighters. He's working with paramedics to get people out of this uh, this building that's collapsing. And it's so incredible and so beautiful to see how he understands that paradigm shift, right? He has changed. He's, it's no longer about, 
taking his anger out um, on other people. It's no longer about vengeance or anger. It's about becoming a symbol of hope. I, I do. That was really what I do love about the Batman. The thing I think with me is that this movie came out like maybe one or two years too late, I think. Just because, like, this is a point that we have reached in this Batman discourse, like, five years ago. Like, I feel like this would have been much more fresh if it had come out just a little bit earlier. But I do agree with everything you're saying. And I do think that, you know, it's useful discourse or it's useful to be able to have that idea represented in an official Batman movie. And represent in such a, like a beautiful. It's done so well. It's such a good like in, even just on its own. It's such a good like crime noir thriller uh, that I think was fantastic. Like I think it stands on its own artistically. Like not even as a superhero film. Um, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that Matt Reeves was just like a little bit behind on the discourse and the kind of the discussion <laughs> where we are with superheroes right now. And that was something that was bugging me. Just as we watched them, does that make sense? Like, yeah, everything you said is valid. I just think that it's a little bit too late. Kind of, it's very similar thoughts to what I had about Black Widow. We can talk about my Black Widow thoughts another time. I have many of them. Too, too little, too too late. late. Okay, so what do you think about the what do you think about the Lego Batman movie? Uh, I think it's hysterical. Um, like it's both such a good um like dissection of the Batman character itself, and also just like a good continuation of the Lego Batman movie or like the the original Lego movie. Um, I will say I haven't seen the second Lego movie. I haven't seen any of the Ninjago ones. I don't care about them. But Lego Batman works so well for me in that it does very, very similar things to what the Batman does in terms of, you know, the Batman as a symbol, but it does it for Batman's character. Like, and his relationships with his family. Yeah. Right. Like, it, it does it kind of the inverse way where instead of turning Batman into something different, it says, you know, this is this is the serious Batman that you ex- are expecting. Uh, here's why that's silly. No, exactly. Yeah. And like, he's like, it's, it's so clearly like lambasting, like his grumpiness, like, and like, it's obviously a send up of the Christopher Nolan character, you know, interacts with other people and the way that he lets his trauma get in the way of his bonds with other people is it's, it's sent up really, really well. If honestly, if I had to fix what I thought was wrong in the Batman 2021, it would be to add a little bit of the secret sauce that is in the Lego Batman. I would give him more people to connect with, not just, but like, do you know what I like? His connection with Zoe Kravitz doesn't really do a lot. Like, and his connection with Alfred doesn't really do a lot. Like, they're just there to be the characters, but like, it's not. Like, it's all introspection that Batman is, you know, dissecting his worldview with. But, like, there's so many good connections that you get in the Lego Batman movie with, you know, you get Dick Grayson coming in to be Robin. Joker, I think, is the other good one. Uh, Even though, like, they're still enemies, technically. It's cute. It's fun. Okay, so what do you think? What do you think about the matchup? Who do you think would be continuing forward? I kind of want to say, like, going up against Selma... I think I want to put forward the Batman again, like similarly to do. And it's just like, it's a little bit more artsy. It's a little bit more nuanced. It'll provide a bit better of a matchup going forward. That's our first quarter of the bracket. Quarter of the bracket. All right. Nice. All right. Um, so next time, are we going to do the first part of my bracket or are we going to do the rest of yours? I think we should do the first part of your bracket. Sounds good. We can do that. 
look forward to that next time. Okay, I guess, I don't know, we should do some kind of sign-off. We don't have, like, sponsors or anything. Uh, you've been listening to Screenwalkers. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we don't have any socials yet, so I guess we'll figure it out. <laughs>